Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes. This Spotlight series looks at the crimes of infrastructure, at who benefits and who is harmed in their making, and how. In Season 1, we'll be hearing about a mine in South Africa, a train line in Palestine, the infamous Guantanamo Bay prison, and a central bus station in Tel Aviv. And across the series, we'll hear what infrastructure tells us about those big, enduring political questions. Capitalism, colonialism and racism, and how people can and do resist. This is a trigger warning. This episode, at times, contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. In the war on terror, intelligence is one of the most crucial tools for our defense. If a captured terrorist has information about a plot against our homeland, we need to know what he knows. Today, for the first time, the American people are going to learn the full truth about torture that took place under the CIA during the Bush administration. Pretty graphic stuff, Brad Glenn. Good afternoon. This report has American embassies and military units on alert for possible threats. Physical assaults, death threats, and humiliating sexual abuse. This is what the Senate Intelligence Committee lays out in its so-called torture report. How much does it cost to run a prison which is known for indefinite detention and a robust torture and abuse programme? How is it legally possible to detain people for over two decades without trial, subject them to abuse and violence which amounts to mental, physical and sexual torture and still deny them their freedom? Who is involved in this criminal enterprise? This is a story about Guantanamo Bay Prison, which has been described by political figures as detaining the worst of the worst. It has come to symbolise the war on terror and the traumas of 9-11, where hundreds of Muslim men were rounded up, sold for a bounty, and then detained for years on a US colonial outpost in Cuba. Taxi drivers, humanitarian workers and even children were held in the detention centre as America's rage in response to 9-11 manifested a space where carceral capitalism rears its ugly head as private contractors are given millions in contracts to maintain a site of ruin, which has seen detainees being force-fed, subject to beatings and sexual degradation. You are listening to Material Crimes. There are no images to these memories. This is by sound. You can hear the shackles moving faster than they should do, which means that they are cutting at the ankles. You can hear people screaming, saying F this, F that, F this, F that, and the detainees screaming. You could just hear. All you were doing was hearing. This was Faroza Bassi's first encounter with Guantanamo Bay Prison, also known widely as Gitmo. He was one of the 750 and more detainees to be imprisoned at Gitmo. Faroza was blindfolded and shackled for the entire journey from Kandahar 
where he was imprisoned to Guantanamo Bay, an 18-hour flight, as he recalled. As Faroz was forced off the plane by US soldiers, he still could not see. He was placed in a compound and made to sit in a stress position. He is one of the men we see in the infamous photograph taken of the detainees wearing orange and kneeling in a cage before they are processed. It's the first image that appears in Google Images when you search for Guantanamo Bay. When Faroz was first transferred to Guantanamo, all he could do was hear and feel, so he could feel the hot sun. He was also wearing a surgical mask and his sweat was going into the mask. He could hear a dog barking and a bad translation of Arabic. And Faroz said he couldn't breathe. He hadn't brushed his teeth for three weeks whilst he was imprisoned in Kandahar. So he was trying not to breathe with his mask still on. Every time he managed to slip the mask off by moving his mouth slightly, a soldier would shout to put the mask back on and this would go on for hours. Detainees were dropping like flies as he could hear the chains clanking to the ground. There were times when Faroz could catch a glimpse of his surroundings when he was wearing goggles. He said that you could see your feet or what was on the ground, and he remembered that the light had changed and that he was now in the presence of floodlights. This was a familiar sight, but there was also a new sound. Clanking gates but these two would become familiar over time. When Faroz's goggles were removed, his eyes adjusted to his new surroundings. As his eyes focused, he saw an Afghan wearing orange similar to him and praying in the cage beside him. He was in Camp X-Ray. Faroz Abbasi was imprisoned in Gitmo from January 2002 to 2005, when he was then released and transferred to Britain. Around 780 Muslim men suspected of terrorism had been held in Guantanamo Bay prison since the start of the war on terror. According to the New York Times, 36 prisoners remain in Gitmo, 12 have been charged with war crimes, 4 are not recommended for transfer and 10 have been recommended for transfer to another country if security conditions are met. This is a story about Guantanamo Bay Prison and what its decaying infrastructure tells us about the entangled relationship between colonialism and capitalism. The focus will be on the prisoners, whose bodies are evidence of the pitfalls of carceral capitalism, where private contractors are rewarded in the millions to maintain an illegal system of abuse. As you listen to this episode, you're going to hear accounts of abuse, torture and humiliation in a rotting prison site. But it's important that you maintain focus on who has been harmed, and that is the prisoners. There will be accounts of how private corporations have been paid millions to fix Gitmo, or provide so-called better services. But the moral of the story should not be that providing a better prison is what's needed. No. Instead, Gitmo should not exist at all, and the accounts of the detainees testify to this. But first, how does a prison facility in Cuba come into the grips of the US? Well, this requires us to go back to the mid-19th century, when Cuba was a Spanish colony. 
Those who defended slavery in the US believed that seizing Cuba was necessary for slavery expansionism. At the time, the Monroe administration were confident that Cuba would eventually become a US territory, and so the Spanish colony of Cuba remained. But things changed in 1898, and the US still needed to secure its naval presence in the Caribbean. The Spanish-American War as a result of a Cuban revolution against Spanish colonial rule enabled the US to assume control of Guantanamo Bay. The Platt Amendment of 1901 granted the US the right to lease and control Guantanamo Bay as a military base indefinitely, unless both parties agreed to terminate the agreement. The US had what is known as complete jurisdiction and control over Guantanamo, whilst Cuba retained ultimate sovereignty or pseudo-sovereignty as others have called it. This paved the way for the US to establish a military base on Guantanamo Bay, which we see today. January 4, 2002. Brigadier General Michael Leonard received an urgent deployment order. A small force of US Marines and sailors left for Guantanamo Bay, a US-run military enclave on Cuba's south coast. The team had just 96 hours to build the first 100 prison cells in time for the first plane load of captives arriving from Afghanistan. Now, Guantanamo's peculiar political geography was an advantage to the US. Its messy political history meant that although the US had complete jurisdiction over the territory, certain laws and privileges which are expected in the US did not apply there, such as the right to asylum or access to courts in mainland US. This became apparent in the early 1990s, when Haitians en route to the US were detained on Gitmo in a move to block their entry to the US. Their confinement was detailed so carefully by the author Nicole Payen, who worked as a translator in the militarised refugee camps in April 1992. The image of Guantanamo is etched in her memory. It had the look of an expired planet, containing only remnants of a life past. The chopping of helicopters or the passing of Humvees crackling the brittle terrain were the only sounds to which I would become accustomed. Otherwise, a hollow silence sterilised the air. For one rarely heard the trilling of birds, the croaking of frogs, or any other natural sound. Overhead, a tropical blue sky provided the only splash of colour. Time moved slowly in Gitmo. Three days felt like two years for Payan. She met several asylum seekers, some only children, who were weighed down by their adult problems. Their childhood snatched away from them whilst they remained incarcerated on Gitmo. At its peak in the 1990s, 40,000 asylum seekers were detained in Guantanamo, kept in four-foot square cages behind barbed wire, an image we saw repeated with those detained as part of the war on terror. Something which is not spoken about so widely is the overlap between Gitmo detainees and the Haitian refugees. Apart from once sharing a space, how else did their worlds collide? Anti-Haitian immigration policies became tied to the war on terror discourse. In October 2002, for example, a boat carrying Haitians and Dominicans arrived in Biscayne Bay and taken straight into immigration detention. Among them were young Haitian men who were denied asylum by Attorney General Ashcroft, who confused a whole load of people by suggesting that, to quote, the release of the Haitian asylum applicants could trigger a mass migration event from Haiti, which would also create a possibility of terrorist infiltration. 
Invoking the war on terror in this decision reiterates the way in which racialized non-citizens can easily slip in and out of perceived dangerousness and is what unites anti-immigration policies with the shifting policies in Guantanamo Bay. Immigration and Customs Enforcement is advertising a new contract to operate a migrant detention facility at the... In 2021, news emerged that the Biden administration was looking for private contractors to operate a migrant detention facility at Gitmo, and for at least some guards to speak Spanish and Haitian Creole, although these claims were rejected by the Biden administration. Currently, 6,000 people live on the bay and it has been described as having a college campus feel. There is a subway, a McDonald's and even a souvenir shop which once sold t-shirts with the slogan Taliban Towers, a five-star resort. Mozambique, who was detained in Gitmo for two years, recalls that the first time he ever ate a subway was during an interrogation. It's become a place where... Uh, every little need of the American, average American, not soldier, but American human being, yeah. uh, has to be catered for. And that means, you know, whether it's for, for while they're working combat stress, it means canteens with the best possible food available, mm. it, uh, after which they'll still complain. It means packages being sent to them from home because you're in the, the front line, therefore you must be get the best possible mm. uh, packages from home. You've got Starbucks. The first time I've ever had Subway in my life, the first time I ever had a Subway sandwich in my life mm. was in Guantanamo. Uh, one of my in- interrogators once bought me a little sandwich, a Subway sandwich. Mm. Um, so there's KFCs there, there's pizzas, expresses and huts there, there's um, classy restaurants there, there's open air uh, cinemas there. Yeah. There's everything that you need to run a town, in fact, uh, probably a city now. As I was doing research for this podcast, I was struck by how the detainees, both former and current, spoke about the sea. The sea was such an important feature for many detainees who, although they could not see it, were aware of its proximity. A recent exhibition called Ode to the Sea showcased the artwork of detainees who often drew the sea. Mu'ad al-Aloui, a Yemeni detainee, once created a model ship made out of the scraps he could get his hands on. Each of its windows revealed an important Islamic city, Jerusalem, Mecca and Medina. He of course could not see the sea himself, despite being detained within its reach. Mansour al-Dayfi, another former detainee from Yemen, spoke to the BBC in 2018 about the first time he saw the sea at Gitmo. The sea was there. We can hear it, we can smell it, but we couldn't see it. Camp Delta, it was only maybe 500 meters away from the, the sea. But there's many fences would cover with green tarp. So 2004, it was like a storm. With like, they say it would hit Gitmo. And um, the workers there take the tarps down. And we couldn't believe it, actually. When they came to take the top down, we can see the, the ocean. The day they took that tarp, everything was quiet. Because this, this is the first time you can see more than three or four meters away, after years. 
everyone just look at the sea. And it was a peaceful days those days. The day for the tarp back. Mozam also peeked over the fence once to take a look at the sea. None of us were in a place where we could naturally, um, organically see the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could see the sea perhaps if you're being transported in a vehicle that isn't closed, which was unusual as well. So most of the time they transport you in a vehicle mm-hmm. that is uh, like, a, like a tin box, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the rare occasion when I could, what I would do is in the recreation yard in what, where I was in Camp Echo, I climbed to the top uh, of this chain link cage and and look across and I could see the sea. I could see sea, I could see tankers, I could see cruise ships sometimes in there. There were, there were, there were cruise ships mm-hmm. where uh, you could see by the size of, of, of this ship. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm at the top of this chain link fence looking through and I can see this cruise ship in which people may be coming for a Caribbean cruise. And uh, you could see and imagine actually what's over the other side. Mm. So beyond this, this ocean was going to be our home that we, of course, were away from. When you read or listen to what the detainees at Gitmo faced when imprisoned, it really is difficult to understand how this was real. Detainees were not even allowed styrofoam cups in their cells. Coffee was okay, but the amount of cups had to be limited. James Yee was a Muslim chaplain in Gitmo, but was then accused of espionage for betraying the US. He recalled the four cell extractions which would take place frequently for what he said were minor infractions. This is him talking to the BBC in 2005. Uh, Those prisoners who had the privilege of having a styrofoam cup in their cell. Um, Sometimes prisoners would end up with two styrofoam cups, one for drinking purposes and one for hygiene purposes after they used the bathroom, for example. That second cup was not allowed by regulation and was then considered uh, by the military police as illegal contraband. And illegal contraband led to punishment in solitary confinement. Prisoners refused to come out of their cells and be taken to solitary confinement for simply having a second styrofoam cup. And so they would have to call the the earthing team and be forcefully extracted violently from, from their cell. The earthing team, as Yi mentions, is the initial reaction force team. And it's been reported by various human rights groups that their use of force was wholly inappropriate. They would be called for alleged misdemeanours and would basically beat up detainees for non-compliance. A Bahraini prisoner called Jamal al-Dusari was subjected to the IRF team for impersonating a female soldier. A British detainee witnessed the abuse and said that Jamal was kicked in the stomach even though he had just had stomach surgery. He was punched, his nose broken and there was blood everywhere. He said, and I quote him, when they took him out, They hosed the cell down and the water ran red with blood. Now this is a good point to think about the conditions of detention at Gitmo. Gitmo is essentially run by private contractors who bid for projects. Halliburton was one of the main contractors of the war on terror. Before he became the vice president in Bush's administration, Dick Cheney was the CEO of Halliburton. So it could be argued that perhaps building the war on terror was kept very close. 
When in office, Cheney said that Gitmo was a good, well-run facility which held the worst of the worst, Nazi terrorists and so on. He claimed that no one else wanted these men and the only option was to kill them, which of course he said that the US doesn't operate that way. These are the worst of the worst. These are the folks who, given a chance, would walk in here today and blow themselves up and and take as many Americans as they could with them. Um, That's what they believe. Uh, There is not a great demand out around the country uh, to have those folks shipped, you know, to your nearest facility. I haven't seen a lot of members of Congress stand up and say, oh, yeah, I'll take a dozen. It's not going to happen. And the same problem you've got overseas or their friends overseas, who oftentimes have been critical for us having Guantanamo, holler at us to close Guantanamo, but not in my backyard. They don't want any of those nasty terrorists uh, arriving in their capital city to be housed and fed and whatever's going to happen to them. So we need Guantanamo. If we didn't have it, we would have had to invite it. It's a good, well-run facility. The press has access to it. The International Committee of the Red Cross has access to it. The home countries of those people who were held down there has access to it. It's a, um, it's a good facility. And uh, if you're going to be engaged in a world uh, conflict, such as we are in terms of global war on terrorism, you know, if you don't have a place where you can hold these people, your only other option is to kill them. And uh, we don't operate that way. But there was another reason for keeping Gitmo open. Private contractors could make a lot of money. In 2005, for example, it was reported that the US Navy awarded the company Kellogg Brown and Root, which is associated with Halliburton, a huge $30 million contract to construct Camp 6, which housed most of the detainees at Gitmo. In 2018, it was reported that it cost $445 million per year to keep Guantanamo running and around $13 million per detainee per year. It is no surprise then that it's been called the most expensive prison on earth. Contractors were brought in from all over the world, with a Norwegian company called KPSI allegedly providing infrastructural support to Gitmo from 1993 to 2006, when its contract was not extended, including maintaining the prison's water and electricity networks. The law firm Stable & Co. concluded that the works of KPSI helped contribute to the torture and human rights violations experienced by detainees in Gitmo. But it is falling apart, despite the millions being thrown at private companies for its repair. Only recently, Vectra Systems Corporation, which is based in Colorado Springs, was awarded a $196 million contract to repair the detention site. Camp 7, known as the most secretive camp of all at Gitmo because it detains those once tortured in black site prisons, is a site of ruin. Sewage runs through the prison cells. The power intermittently flickers and toilets overflow. The CIA has control over the camp and must approve of all work that takes place there. The ageing prisoners of Gitmo require specialised care, and even possibly end-of-life care, considering they are nowhere near to being released. The medical facilities needed would cost approximately $50 million, but Congress declined to fund it due to other urgent infrastructural needs elsewhere. The prison camps were constructed as if they were built in a hurry, and were meant to be temporary. Former guard Joseph Hickman writes about this in his book, Murder at Camp Delta. The entrance was a double roll of chalk 
link fences topped with quarantine wire. The fire building, about 15 feet from the entrance, was the medical clinic. It was the most modern building in all of Camp Delta, and it was made of plywood. Inside Camp Delta were the detention areas called Camps 1 and 2 3. Each consisted of several open cell blocks, wire fence walls under tin roofs. Clear plexiglass covered some of the walls so that the cells weren't completely exposed to the elements. But I could see right away that the design combined the worst of two worlds. The cell blocks were partially open to the elements and they were under the tin roofs. In the hot sun, the cell baked the occupants like bread in an oven. The cells were small and primitive. Each 6 by 8 foot cage had a metal rack attached to the wall that served as a bed. Next to this stood a small toilet and sink. Each attainee was issued a sheet, a blanket, a washcloth and two towels, all made of tear-resistant materials. They were permitted to have a single plastic water bottle and a small bar of soap, toothpaste, a small brush and 25 sheets of toilet paper per day. I asked Rosam about the sounds of Gitmu, specifically what he remembers the most. Probably from when I was put on the blocks mm. uh, for the last few months with mm. other prisoners. Mm. Uh, the most notable thing, there, there were many different things, but um, the sound of, 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 uh, of somebody leading the prayer, mm. um, of whoever it was who happened to be at the front of the cell. This wasn't now, the, the imam wasn't based upon how much Quran he knew. Mm. It was based upon where you physically were in the block. So if mm. you were the first person in the block, you got to lead all the other prisoners. Okay. Um, and each one is their own single cell. So this was this was an interesting development, and it, the sound was always sweet. It was always mm. uh, melodic. It was always tranquil, and it brought tranquility. Mm. Um, and that sound, coupled with, and I used to always notice that maybe some of the other prisoners didn't as much, but th- there were the barbed wire runs through around the top of the perimeters to the to the uh, blocks, mm. and the barbed wire is surrounded by razor wire. Mm. And when there's a breeze, that razor wire hits against the barbed wire and it sounds like a wind chime. Mm. And you hear it, especially in the evenings or when there's there's stronger winds. And that sound um, was surprisingly, remarkably soothing. And it's sometimes coupled with the sound of of somebody reciting Quran um, had its own... Uh, you know, idiosyncrasy to it. It was just something that was so... One told me the story of how we're clearly prisoners around this, surrounded by razor wire. Mm. And the other reminded me of my connection to my faith and to how I'm going to get through this. The prison industrial complex is all about generating money. I remember listening to Angela Davis, where she refers to it as a system of profitability for business and governments in the realm of military production and public punishment. What this basically means is that the prison industry has become a lucrative business for governments and private corporations who are now profiting off confinement. This is similar to the UK, where the private company known as G4S recently secured a £300 million contract to operate a new prison in Northamptonshire. Their website promises 700 jobs and describes its care as highly rated, but leaked footages from various sites show the opposite. 
The privatisation of prisons, healthcare and education does not guarantee pristine infrastructure. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In 2017, prison inspectors described being astounded by deterioration after visiting a G4S managed prison in Birmingham. G4S isn't confined to the UK, but they actually operate on a global scale, including in the maintenance of checkpoints in Palestine, to which Davis describes them as offering security under the neoliberal state. G4S is especially important because it participates blatantly, directly, openly in the maintenance and reproduction of repressive apparatuses in Palestine. We're talking about prisons and checkpoints and the apartheid wall. G4S represents the growing insistence on uh, what is called security under the neoliberal state. Gitmo isn't really an exception then, in the sense that private corporations in this neoliberal age are intrinsic to keeping the prison economy running. It is necessary to consider how such corporations profit from ruin, and in the case of Gitmo, how the site of the body, the detainee's body specifically, is the site where ruin takes place. The torture and abuse the detainees suffered can be traced back to the state and also the private corporations who were contracted to carry out such tasks without legal repercussions. Let's take a closer look at their role. To win the war on terror, we must be able to detain, question, and when appropriate, prosecute terrorists captured here in America and on the battlefields around the world. Since the war began, private contractors have made millions. The basic rule is that the more ruin there is, the more money they get. This includes construction work on military homes, war courts, compounds, which cost $14.5 million, as well as renovating a prison staff chapel for $47,000. In Gitmo, the detainees are tried in military commissions as a way to avoid bringing the detainees to US courts. These commissions have been described by the US Supreme Court as lacking the most basic judicial guarantees which are recognised as indispensable by civilised peoples. Keeping these so-called kangaroo courts open exceeded $123 million in 2018. And here we see the pieces of the puzzle come together. The colonial legacy of Guantanamo Bay, which is now under US jurisdiction, has meant that the law can be evaded and justice attained only in warlike courts. Private contractors swoop in to assemble these courts and reinforce the message that Gitmo is legitimate. They create the facade needed to show to the world that Gitmo is up and running, just like any other prison or any other court in the world. Whatever happens in the cells of the detainee or corridors of the prison is behind the scenes and not for show. After all, photography and filming are strictly regulated and even prohibited in certain areas of the base. The role of private contractors came to the fore after the abuse scandal in Abu Ghraib prison and the role of Blackwater contractors who killed 14 Iraqis. In Gitmo, the role of private contractors is slowly unravelling. Now, the second so-called winner in this story of colonial entanglement is the US state. By outsourcing their security and infrastructural needs to private corporations, they're absolved of any responsibility if things go wrong. It wasn't just construction work that these private contractors were involved in, but also interrogations in the early days of the war on terror. 
In 2004, it was revealed that interrogators were contracted by the companies such as General Services Administration and Chenega Federal Systems to operate in Guantanamo Bay. Joseph Hickman's memoir also details the presence of private contractors during interrogations. He said they were dressed in black fatigues, such as those who were from the military and intelligence contractors, CACI International, who accompanied the CIA into the only interrogation building inside Kent Delta, known to Hickman as Camp No, because if anyone asked if it existed, the answer was no. It was there, he said, that we assumed the men in black congregated. These contractors operated outside of military law. They cost three times as much as government employees and could not be held by the same standard of accountability, such as the Freedom of Information Act. Now, the enhanced interrogation techniques which were authorised by the Bush administration were devised by two CIA contractors, Bruce Jessen and James Mitchell. Some of the techniques included extreme sleep deprivation, cramped confinement with insects, as well as waterboarding, which gives the sensation of drowning and suffocating. Their company, Mitchell Jessen and Associates, received $81 million from the CIA for their interrogation programme. They were actually promised more until the CIA terminated the contract amid reports of interrogation abuse. Many of those abused and tortured by the programme are still detained in Gitmo. In 2015, a case was filed with the ACLU against Mitchell and Jessen on behalf of three former black site detainees who were subjected to their torture programme, including the deceased Gul Rahman, who died from his injuries. What is interesting is that during the case, examples from the Holocaust were consistently invoked by both sides. The defence lawyers used the example of a technician at a company whose poisonous gas was used in Auschwitz and yet was apparently acquitted by a tribunal as he could not dictate if the gas was going to be used in a concentration camp. This was used to show how Mitchell and Jessen had no influence on how their enhanced interrogation techniques programme was going to be used by the CIA. In response to these examples, the plaintiffs' lawyers argued that Bruno Tesch, who owned a poisonous gas company during the Holocaust, was in fact executed for supplying the gas to concentration camps. Mitchell and Jessen were never prosecuted for their programmes and settled out of court. We see here how private contractors become implicated in the same system they were paid millions for. But above all, we see how states are absolved of any crime. The detainees are the ones who are ultimately most affected by these entanglements. They are the ones who not only live amidst the ruin and decay, but have been subjected to some of the most horrific acts of torture and abuse. Their Qurans were desecrated by guards, and some were force-fed violently when they went on hunger strikes. Lisa Hajar, a professor of sociology at the University of California, visited Gitmo 14 times since the start of the war on terror. She spoke to me about one of the supervised tours she went on whilst attending the military commission hearings at Gitmo. We were allowed, we could be taken up to a window, you know, for example, in the common room where, you know, a number of detainees would be able to like be making their own food and things. The window was a um, like a one-way mirror. So we could see them, they couldn't see us. And so like journalists would sort of like press face up and then try to get pictures mm. of detainees that didn't show uh, their faces and stuff. And we saw... You know, we were taken on a tour of like the library, you know, the pitiful little library. 
and the um, the clinic, the health clinic. But so periodically, including in times when, you know, um, I was there, like, you know, I think I did one of these prison tours, like in 2013, when I saw this medium security thing and took the tour of the, um, the health clinic. So, you know, there were prisoners who were on hunger strike. And, mm-hmm. you know, Guantanamo had very early on decided to utilize force feeding you know, for prisoners. I mean, that was because they basically, and they have a whole bunch of, you know, rationales for why they would force feed prisoners. We got to see, for example, the chair that force feeding takes place in. And it looks like like an electrical chair because it's like a chair with, you know, straps for the arms and legs. And then a um, medical technician who actually administers the force feeding, you know, sort of journalists were allowed to interview him, but we weren't like this soldier, like he had, you know, tape over his um, name badge. So we didn't know who he was and we weren't allowed to film his face, but he was explaining how humane and, you know, that prisoners really appreciate, you know, the ability to be fed so they don't get too skinny and die. And then one thing he said without any, you know, sense of irony whatsoever was that, you know, to, to illustrate the sensitivity of the military authorities, that during Ramadan, they would feed, force feed prisoners date flavored in short because Muslims like dates during Ramadan. I mean, so that was, you know, there, oh that was the example. Of that. You can hear me say, oh my goodness, at this point in the interview, because of how carefully thought out torture and abuse programs and Gitmo was. It includes cultural sensitivity, such as ensuring that detainees were given a date-flavoured ensure drink when force-fed in Ramadan, because Muslims typically break their fast on dates. This is an important point to emphasise. The detainees' Muslim identities were used in many of the abuse and torture programmes to break them because of how observant they were in their religious practices. One of the most severe cases of physical, mental and sexual torture was that of Muhammad al-Qahtani, who was believed to be the 20th hijacker. Qahtani was diagnosed with schizophrenia even before he was detained at Gitmo, and recently a government review board has recommended his release and repatriation to Saudi Arabia, given how severe his mental health issues are. This is just a snapshot of the degradation faced by these detainees. Mohamedou Slahi, probably the most famous Mauritanian right now, was held in Gitmo and recalls in his memoirs how he was sexually molested during his interrogation. He was also banned from fasting during the holy month of Ramadan at a time when religion was the only thing they had to hold on to. The detainees were called only by their ISN numbers given to them during processing. Reading Slahi's memoirs, you'll find that many sentences and words have been redacted under the orders of the US to protect those involved in his torture and abuse. He was once kidnapped during an interrogation by someone he knows only as Mr X. After being beaten up and suffocated with ammonia spray, he was placed on a high-speed boat. He was forced to drink the seawater which made him throw up. The interrogators would shout, swallow, you idiot, and worse profanities. This trip was orchestrated to make Slahi believe that he was being transferred somewhere else. Was he being rendered back to Jordan, where he was held previously? Or Egypt, where, according to one Arabic-speaking interrogator, he will say everything. Ice cubes were stuck to Slahi's body, and he was then beaten with them on.
Earlier on in the episode, I recalled how detainees would marvel at the sea, the serenity of the waves and the piercing blue. But of course, we also see how it is used to torture. This all contributed to a geographical displacement that all detainees were subject to. Some had no idea that they were held in Cuba, considering they were goggled during their rendition to the prison, but also because the prison facility they were held in replicated a US prison. For Mozam, he knew exactly where he was because he had watched the news before his detention. First of all, in the beginning, most people didn't know where they were mm. because there's this whole process of blindfolding, disorientating people that your intent, the intention is to make you believe yeah. that you're somewhere else. Yeah. Some people were told we were told in, in Israel. Others were told we are in uh, uh, somewhere in the Gulf. Some were told we're, we're in India. And it was designed to terrify, to mm. frighten, to disorientate Most of those who remain in Gitmo were tortured in CIA black sites, making their release and so-called trials in military commissions more complex. Camp 7 closed in spring 2021 due to structural issues and there are no plans to repair the damage. The refusal to repair any of the damages allegedly stems from the Biden administration's plans to close Gitmo by the end of his term. But it's still unclear why the same administration advertised for private contractors to manage Haitian asylum seekers in 2021. Even those released are still facing the consequences of their illegal detention at Gitmo. The resettlement programs offered to former detainees meant that they were relocated away from family and friends. From Ansar Defi, he was transferred to Serbia as his home country, Yemen, was deemed too insecure by the US to send him back to. Life for Mansour in Serbia was Guantanamo 2.0. He says that he has been beaten, detained and arrested. His friends have been harassed and interrogated and his housing supporters constantly threatened to be cut by the Serbian government. Three Yemenis and two Tunisians who were released in 2014 after spending over a decade at Gitmo were resettled in Kazakhstan. Six Tunisian detainees were also freed a few months before Uruguay where they now have started a new life. In the war on terror, intelligence is one of the most crucial tools for our defense. Remember, these are the ones in Guantanamo Bay are killers. Uh, they're, uh, uh, they don't share the same values we share. There's a hook on the floor. The leg irons are attached to the hook. Then they put your hands between your ankles at the floor and chain you to the hook on the floor as well. Please, we are tired. Even you leave us to die in peace, or either tell the world the truth, open up the place. You cannot walk, not even half a meter, without being chained. Is that a human being? That's a treatment of an animal. Camp X-ray is now overgrown with weeds. The cages, which once held Muslim men, remain, although they have started to rust and turn brown. A sign is displayed that says, off limits, trespassers will be prosecuted. To date, no one has been prosecuted for the atrocities which took place in Gitmo. There have been recent movements to once again try and close Gitmo because of its shameful legacy and to move forward, as Senator Dick Durbin put forth to the Senate in November 2021. Closing Gitmo is of course necessary, but accountability must be pursued, which several former detainees are trying to do with the release of their memoirs. Their accounts are chilling and shows the extent to which Gitmo continues to haunt them. 
The nexus between private corporations, the US state and its continued imperial endeavours at Gitmo has several layers to it. And I imagine in the years to come, much more will be revealed. But I end this episode with the words of former Mauritanian detainee Mohamedou Oudslahi to shift attention back to those who have been brutalised by this billion-dollar relationship. As he said, You could never understand the extent of the physical and much more the psychological pain people in my situation suffered, no matter how hard you tried to put yourself in another's shoes. We were singing all in the block and that really irritated the the JTF people, that is for the people of the Joint Task Force. Like this, have a habibiliya, and then all this is Sijinu Jannatun Wanaru, and El Mugamiru, El Wimaru, Tala Annaharu, Alad Duna, Waleyama, Tala What an episode. I think that is possibly one of the most important bits of content we have put out on Surviving Society. It's really difficult, as with all the material crimes episodes, to put into words just how vex. <laughs> like that kind that kind of episode, that kind of content and that kind of information made me feel. Um, how moved, how yeah, angry and just frustrated at the but I inequality. Think, I think it's a space that we don't really think of, right? If you've measured at the height of the war in terror, Guantanamo yeah. Bay was yeah. quite in the popular imagination, right? Yeah. But all of a sudden it kind of recedes to the back of people's minds. Right. And yeah. to bring it forward like that. The strength you have of character, mind, scholarship to actually be able to put that together, I'm also in admiration of as well. And I guess for Tiso and I, like being so moved by that, I guess on a personal level, we just wondered like how you came to be both interested in and motivated to do this kind of scholarship mm. on Guantanamo Bay. Yeah, I guess, um, first of all, like, thank you for your comments and, you know, just thinking through Guantanamo and its importance to me. So um, so I know no one can see me, but I am a Muslim woman. Mm. I grew up during, I guess, the height of the war on terror. I was 11 when 9-11 took place. I didn't really know what was happening. Um, I didn't even know what the World Trade Center was, right? I, 11 years old, I had no idea. But those years that particular event, the war on terror and so on, really shaped my life. It shaped the career trajectory I took. It shaped, you know, how people interacted with me, my family members, people I knew and whatever. So I've always been interested in this dynamic. How did the war on terror shape Muslim identity? How did it shape my own identity? What did it mean for the way in which we were profiled? You know, trying to travel to the US, for example, the mobilities, our mobilities being stopped in various places and spaces. And then that took me to Guantanamo because I think there was so much hype around it over the first couple of years that it was opened um, and it still is open. And I think that sort of, um, there's been a lot of silence around it or, or you know, we, we don't really know what to do with this anymore. And I always go back to what is happening to these men there. So the opportunity came about, I guess, with this material crimes episode to really think through the structural damage that is taking place there. The fact that, you know, you know, to highlight what is going on with these prisoners, um, you know, who are suffering as a consequence of the war on terror, but also policies um, relating to, you know, colonialism, capitalism and so forth, that they need this prison to continue to exist. And before it was used, 
as a prison and you know during the war on terror it was used as part of you know anti-immigration policies towards Haitian refugees and I think that's a really important history that I try to bring about in the episode two that securitization I had no idea about that I had no idea about that this is what I kind of what kind of struck me when I'm listening to it it's the idea it's always been a nowhere place right yeah and that's quite interesting in the context of colonialism and in terms of geography. And you kind of explore that when people get there, no one understands where they are. Mm. And I think that's a powerful thing, right? Absolutely. I think this idea about geographical erasures is so interesting because what we found or, you know, what I found when I was researching this is that you had detainees who were saying, you know, I was blindfolded, I was shackled. Um, they couldn't hear because they had... Um, earmuffs on and so on that they were being told that you were being rendered to this place or that place you know uh, and it was all part of the torture right it was all part of the torture regime um, and then they land in Guantanamo Bay and again you know this is a space that some knew about so Mozambique for example who was detained in Guantanamo he spoke about you know I knew about this place I had watched the news I knew that it was used for you know um, all different types of abuse and torture and whatever um, but for a vast majority of prisons, they had no idea. And I think it's really important and it's really confusing as well that there is a U.S. prison in Cuba, right? Um, two totally different political entities coming together in this one space, right? And I think Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, we need to highlight those geographies, right? Those geographies of violence, those geographies of erasure that you speak about. And it's something that I try to to flesh out in the episode um, thinking through, you know, the how erasure is used as a form of violence against these prisoners, perhaps. In that space, you have capitalism and mm. consumerism, yeah, which is an, on an odd kind of. It's almost an oxymoronic, right? Mm. In a, in a nowhere space, you have a Starbucks. Oh yeah, yeah. Because what's happening is that, you know, and I guess with any sort of um, military industrial complex, you know, prison sites or whatever, it, it feeds into capitalism, right? It feeds into the economy. You need you need it to become a livable space. Even though it's not a livable space for the prisoners, it needs to be a livable space for the guards, for those, you know, the, the, the naval base and whatever. So you have Starbucks, you have McDonald's, you have a shop that has souvenirs saying, you know, Taliban Towers, you know, <laughs> and all sorts of, you know, taking the mick basically out of the abuse mm -hmm. that took place. And, and it's really interesting that you could be holidaying in Cuba not knowing that there's a prison site a few miles away, right? And, you, and in the episode especially, you get the prisoners talking about the sea and you get them thinking about, well, you know, I can hear the sea, I can smell it, but um, I can't see it, I'm not allowed to see it. And I think that's what's really, um, it gives me goosebumps right now thinking about it, right? That, that you can have such an idyllic, tropical paradise but then you've got this enclosure this prison enclosure right in the middle um which needs to be highlighted i think just bringing it to yeah you talking about the descriptions that yeah. the prisoners give particularly when they're blindfolded like i completely agree definitely mm. had goosebumps listening to that and just felt yeah just helpless in in what listen listening to pain like that and i just want to kind of bring it to the more sort of scholarly element of what you've produced um, in this episode and that being that I think what you've been able to do is show pain and harm and perpetuated by the state mm. 
beyond the written word in a way that I don't think we've ever been able to capture before on this show. Um, and I think that I don't want, I'm always kind of thinking like, how are people going to critique things we've done? And um, particularly when we're talking about things that are so, so vastly um, inequitable, but it's, it's not done in a gratuitous way. Like mm. it's, you haven't done it and produced it in a way that is, um, that overly, that is overly about victimization. Like it's much more powerful than that. Of course they are victims, mm. but it's not, I, I don't know how to put it into words, but I think it's just such a good example of scholarship beyond the written word that's done in a creative, but really kind of puts the prisoners' voices in the forefront. So I think that, yeah, your cur- curation is really something to be admired here. I think um, just on that one point, when people, when people, um, you know, read that I'm working on a, uh, project called material crimes and the project the podcast episode that i'm working on is guantanamo bay the first question that they will say is well how is it a crime if it's legal and i think that's what's really important that's what's really <laughs> people imp- are wild yeah you know? so how is it a crime if it's legal right, it's, it's, it's so off. so how is it how is it a crime right you know like and i think that's what's really important for us to remember that just because something is legal doesn't mean that it can't produce forms of violence and insecurity and whatever. We need to question how things become legal, how criminality gets sort of like washed up or, you know, transformed and repackaged into this form of, well, it's legally possible. It was legally fine for, you know, the Bush administration to say, well, this detainee can stand up for eight hours as a form of torture. And that isn't a form of torture to them. That is abuse, right? That is, I don't. I, I wouldn't. I would hesitate to even say abuse, but it was a way in which they could gather intelligence, which would not fit the parameters of what torture is. And I think it's really important for us to interrogate, you know, through this episode, through our understandings of criminality, that just because something is legal, it doesn't. Um, it, it could absolutely relate to criminality, and I think this is what's really important. Uh, something I try to get across, and something I hope that the listeners. Um, really think about in their day to day. For example, you know, deporting um, asylum seekers to Rwanda was legal. Doesn't mean it's okay. And this is something that we need to always be challenging. This is this goes beyond Guantanamo, right? And I think that's what's really crucial. In the bleakest of situations, the idea of hope mm. and how hope comes across in certain things. So, this, when you, when you're talking about the sounds of the razor wire with the barbed wire, now these are quite oppressive means of holding people, but in those desperate, in those very kind of bleak situations, human beings find the hope, man. Mm. They find something of beauty, something that's sublime. And it's it's weird how it comes across, right? So Absolutely. he talks about it and, and it's quite chilling because you think, right, this is crazy. Mm. Like you, you, you're in this place almost indefinitely. Mm. So how do you survive in that mm. situation? And people find ways, man. Absolutely. I think what struck me, just speaking to Mozam, who is, you know, his, I can listen to him for hours. And um, reading the autobiographies and the testimonies of the prisoners, you know, when it comes to hope, they they often speak about holding on to their religion, which is why things such as desecrating their holy books, the Qurans and whatever, was such a massive issue for them, you know. And, and the way in which religion was sort of um, manipulated to become a form of abuse and torture, I think, is really important to highlight too. So, for example... Um, you know, during Ramadan, when they couldn't, uh, when they were fasting, they couldn't eat, they couldn't drink, they would be, for example, forced to eat, they would have, you know, sexual degradation taking place in front of them. And these are all forms of torture. These are these are all forms of abuse that takes place. And when we're thinking about hope, um, 
that's all they had and then there's another part which I couldn't really uncover in this in this podcast episode but thinking about hunger strikes right as forms of hope using your body as the only means of resistance that you know I'm going to hunger strike in order to prove a point and then what happens is that they get force fed which again is another form of abuse right Mm -hmm. um so absolutely I think you're right I think I think um I think they do hold on to hope and they still hold on to hope, I think, which is really powerful. Yeah, which is crazy. Even when you're talking about the forms of silly things about the, the cups of coffee, the polystyrene cups, mm. that that was just messing with my head. Like, I can't remember, what was it about? Yeah, like they could only have like a certain amount of cups mm. in their rooms. Um, and if you watch like videos online on YouTube, for example, like um, plastic forks and spoons and all sorts had to you had to make sure they weren't going to be used as weapons right like everything was very carefully um you know scrutinized whatever the prisoners got hold of and that was really something that really really something um that got me thinking about just everyday objects how mm-hmm. they become really easily securitized right yeah like cups what the hell shireen thank you so much thank you You've been listening to Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes Season 1. Please follow, rate, subscribe and review on your preferred podcast platform.